0: and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here back with you once again in the month of January. How's it going ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages i am mike the legend who's glad to be back with you once again after a uh, week away last week scheduling conflicts these things happen regardless of uh, what time of year it is but we are back together and it's so good to be back together with all of you listening to us talking to you it's a it's a great community we have going on so glad that uh, we can all be part of it together under one tent and uh, we've got a lot to talk about this week don't we
1: we sure do, and uh, this week I'm Dennis, the man who is glad that Weird Al is fulfilling his contractual obligation to make a movie once every 33 years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's true. You know, if, uh, if you perhaps heard the news, uh, Weird Al, and we'll talk about it later on in case you haven't, but Weird Al, uh, a part of a, uh, a new movie that's being made about his life, but, uh, it's been quite a while since his last movie.
1: Yeah, the last movie, which, you know, we've talked about, I'm sure more than once on this program is the Blast from the Past. Anyways, the, the, which was called UHF, which, uh, if you've never seen it, it's great still, like it still holds up. It's, it's goofy, but it's, It's a fun 80s, you know, comedy movie. I would say it kind of holds the same kind of, uh, well, it holds up in the same way that the, the the naked gun movies hold up, for example, I'd
0: say. True. Yes. Uh, silly. Um, but it's a, it's a lighthearted serious, you know, silliness, but it takes its silliness seriously.
1: Yes. Exactly.
0: Which is my favorite form of comedy. Absolutely, and uh, you're not wrong with that. It felt like a natural extension of uh, Weird Al and his comedy and his uh, persona at the time. I mean, box office-wise, it really did not do well whatsoever.
1: No. And, you know, as a result, you know, back in 89, I think the actual story went that he didn't, well, like, like most people who made movies and stuff back then, you know, it exists in a vacuum and there's no way to tell if something had a cult following or not right? Because there was no internet. And he just kind of figured it was a flop. It was a mistake. I'm never doing this again. Until, you know, years later, you know, similar to Conan O'Brien's story about, you know, when he first started off, he figured same thing going off in a vacuum. No idea how many people are watching his show. And now that he's, you know, a man in his late fifties, you know, who's been, who had been on the air for like, 25 years, seeing younger people of our age going, you were huge to me growing up, blah, blah, blah. I love this thing. And then same thing for Weird Al. I loved UHF. You know, I've got a DVD and it's great and blah, blah, blah. And him going, huh, interesting. <laughs> so yeah, I guess it's good that, you know, that his initial sour experience has been kind of reversed because, you know, UHF is great and I, you know, one, I am curious what he's going to do in the future.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I'm sure the making of uh, UHF back in that time, you know, which was a major studio release, you know, yeah. the budget may not have been particularly big, maybe 10, 20 million, but still uh, uh was a major studio production. It wasn't as though it was uh being done by Netflix and you could have full creative control. You're going through that experience because that's how movies were made basically up until the, the mid 2000s. Really? Yeah, uh, the budget was, was
1: yeah, by, by the way, the budget was a five million dollar oh. <laughs> movie and the box office, they made 6.1 million. So it wasn't unprofitable even like it, it made its money back at the box office. Mm-hmm.
0: But uh, I have seen, you know, weird. i talk about the release of UHF too, that it came out the summer of like the first Batman movie, the summer of Rambo three coming out. So it really just got squashed by these other big, major summer blockbuster releases. Yeah. Which, which you can understand, but, uh, uh, I mean, it still stands, it still holds up, and amazingly, the comedy and the jokes in it still hold up, even for a movie that's 33 years old.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, that's very hard for comedy. I mean, if you're watching an old comedy and you're laughing in 2022, that means it's, like, actually a very good comedy.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think part of that, too, is not... There really aren't too many of the jokes in UHF that are time-centric or era-centric. Uh A lot of it is just silly concepts or, or weird ideas or quirks of people, and those are facets of comedy that can exist all through time. So, like, still with me today, anytime I see, you know, some ridiculous tanker truck or whatnot, I always think of, uh, you know, the line in UHF, UHF of, uh, Oh, Billy, you get to drink from the fire hose! Yeah.
1: <laughs> and by the way, when you were mentioning all those movies that it was released sort of against, uh, according to Wikipedia within the, but the prior month and up to the release of UHF, uh, the movies that UHF was going up against were Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Lethal Weapon 2, Batman, like the Tim Burton Batman, yep. License to Kill, When Harry Met Sally, and Weekend at Bernie's. So, <laughs> That's, that's quite the, the lineup to go against. I mean,
0: no wonder it didn't do well. And yet of that list, I want to say UHF is one of the, the few movies that has probably eight, uh, still holds up. Yeah. I mean, Indiana
1: Jones and Ghostbusters still hold up, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Lethal Weapon 2. I still like, but I don't know if, a, you know, with fresh eyes would necessarily be, uh, you know, whatever, when Harry met Sally. Like a lot of them are also very like dated in the time, which, you know, admittedly UHF is as well. But yeah, it's hard to compare though, but like every single one of those movies also has had a lasting appeal. That's true which is another kind of tricky thing like you you're releasing a movie against like basically a stacked lineup it's like essentially like it's like sort of like the the similar reason why like people don't consider Scotty Pippen one of the best i mean people who know basketball consider him one of the best basketball players of all time but like when you're looking at that lineup that he was part of they were just all kind of like other players compared to Michael Jordan right they, like, true. It's true, like, yeah,
0: and, and Jordan got all the attention. Yeah, and all the credit, even though, like, really, it was a team effort. Oh, absolutely. If, uh you know, Scottie Pippen wasn't there, the Bulls don't go on the, the you know, two three-peats that they had through the 90s. Yeah, three three-peats. Oh, three three-peats. Well, no, it was only two three-peats, because three three-peats is nine titles, and they did not have nine titles. Like, I think it was two three-peats from like, uh, 92 to 94, uh, and then, cause I think 1991 the Pistons won. Ah. And, and then, Right, after- yes, yes. So yeah. it, yes, it, it was the six championships. R- regardless,
1: like, you, you yeah. don't get six championships by just being a one-player team. No, but absolutely really, not. But th- this has been just a bit of like, you know, a, a walking down a path <laughs> that I didn't mean to walk down fully. I just meant like, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to compare UHF to Scottie Pippen here, where it's like, yeah, it's a movie that has heart and definitely is a great movie. Just it's hard to, you know, you know it like it's cast in the shadow of all these other great movies that were also released pretty much at the same time. So I get it, but I'm glad that it has maintained its cult status and uh that Weird Al now. I mean, maybe this is a good time to transition into the ludicrous leadoff that we've been kind of teasing here that there's finally going to be a new Weird Al movie coming out.
0: And it's not quite what you think it's going to be. No, it's not UHF two. It's not uh, any sort of, it, it has nothing to do with UHF, which no. in this well, UHF, UHF might be mentioned in it at some point, but this is not any sort of continuation or expansion on the story that was started in UHF. No, that was a one-and-done movie. Which, in this day and age of uh, so many properties coming back, and really nothing being a dormant franchise anymore, uh is kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, the Fresh
1: Prince of Bel-Air is being brought back, for God's sakes. like Yes, in a in, gritty reboot. Yeah, which is not really the type of thing that that series ever needed. But, hey,
0: anyways... Um, <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how that turns out. But so this one is called this new movie that's being done uh, with Weird Al uh, involved in it uh, is going to be called Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And while this is not a continuation of the UHF movie that came out back in 1989, this is actually kind of building upon something that does already exist, because back in 2013, back when Funny or Die was a website, Before they eventually moved their own videos over to Facebook and got really hosed by the Facebook video algorithms, along with a lot of other people, and they... But, like, they're,
1: they are still also a major production company,
0: so... True, yes. Uh, so, uh, Funny or Die released a, a parody trailer for a non-existent Weird Al biopic movie, because in the late 2000s into early 2010s, uh, biopic movies, in, in seemingly in specific, musician biopic movies, were a really popular genre. Yeah. And there's the uh, Johnny Cash biopic movie. There was the Ray Charles biopic movie that uh, Jamie Foxx did and, and won all the praise for. So they they were a, a big genre back then. And so the parody trailer was for Weird, the Weird, or Weird, the Aliankovic story, which had, I, I went back and rewatched it before we started this recording. And in it, it had Aaron Paul uh, playing Weird Al in this parody trailer. Aaron Paul, who played Jesse Pinkman on Breaking Bad. Uh, Olivia Wilde, uh, had Patton Oswald as Dr. Demento. Had, <laughs> yep. Had Mary Steenburgen play Weird Al's dad, or Weird Al's mom. Uh, I think Gary Cole playing Weird Al's dad. And Weird Al himself played a a record exec, uh, in this, you know, two minute trailer who just was poo-pooing you know, Weird Al's music and saying it would, you know, would never take off and never be a thing and kind of goes through his rise and, you know, uh, downfall and then an ultimate, uh, uh, you know, return to some semblance of glory after a, a bout of, you know, uh, their own personal demons, you know, yeah. traditional musician biopic stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The the notes that are often hit in those same sorts of endeavors. So Weird Al is, uh, going to be involved in this movie, which is a kind of an expansion of that parody trailer that was released on Funnier Die back in 2013. But this new movie is going to be, I believe, co-written and directed by Eric Appel, who did that original Funnier or Die parody trailer back in 2013.
1: Yeah. And when you say co-written, the other person writing it is Al himself.
0: That's right. And You might think, well, you know, Weird Al, he's just a musician, what sort of writing chops does he have? No, he writes all his music. Yeah. Like, both the parodies and the original stuff, he writes all his own material. Yeah, all of it. And you might think, oh, well, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. Yes, it is. Some of his parodies are absolute genius. Some of his original songs are even better than the parodies.
1: One, well, there's, well, better or not, I mean, that's totally subjective, but I would say more memorable in many ways. Uh, like, I've, I've personally listened to Amish
0: Paradise more times than I have Gangsta's Paradise, if I'm being honest. True, very true. And, uh, uh, I, his song, uh, Bob, uh, which is a style of parody of Bob Dylan, all the lyrics are palindromes. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, phrases are palindromes, but still, it's all comprised of palindromes. It, he's actually a really creative writer and I dare say underappreciated, like, genius writer for what he does, but he's going to be involved with this and we'll get to see his, uh, skill with the words in the script with this as well. But the big kicker that I think had everyone talking is who is tapped to portray Al in this new, uh, pseudo-biopic movie that's coming out. So who exactly is tapped to play Weird Al in this endeavor?
1: Well, uh you might have heard of him before. He's a I was going to say a young British kid, but no, he's not really that young. I mean, the the movie that he and some other British kids at the time when they actually were children were in just celebrated its 20th anniversary of release. <laughs> um Jesus god. Yeah. So, um y- y- you might have remembered him who as portraying
0: Harry Potter. You know, uh Daniel Radcliffe. So so he's playing Weird Al in this, is is what you're telling me? Yes. My God, that's weird.
1: <laughs> yeah. See what I did
0: there? See what I did there? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Though like
1: guaranteed this is not gonna be an actual accurate telling of his life. <laughs> Let's just say, um, because it's funny or die, and because it's, you know, being written being You know, written by comedy people, I'm counting Weird Al as a comedy person, because you you need to at this point, Um, I guess it's written by comedy people, it's probably going to be a lot more like, you know, a walk hard than a walk the line.
0: (laughs) Yes, that that's fair. Uh, an entertaining quote here from Weird Al Yankovic in the press release heralding the announcement of this uh, upcoming biopic. He says, quote, When my last movie, UHF, came out in 1989, I made a solemn vow to my fans that I would release a major motion picture every 33 years, like clockwork. I'm very happy to say we are on schedule. Uh, and he later adds that he is absolutely thrilled that Daniel Radcliffe will be portraying him in, or be portraying me in the film. I have no doubt whatsoever that this is the role future generations will remember him for. End quote.
1: <laughs> yes, classic Weird Al joke right there. Um what I, what I thought was a little bit weird about this though, and I don't mean that as like a punny take on the weird thing, I mean genuinely weird, is yes, sure, Funnier Die and Tango are both producing this, but so is the Roku channel. Like I didn't actually realize that the
0: Roku channel produced stuff. Like, I, I, I mean, I'll speak as someone who doesn't have a Roku device. I'm not entirely clear on what the Roku channel is. Is that just their own in-house, you know, content service? Yeah.
1: Like I, I do have a Roku. It's, it's a free service. It seems that, you know, has like, if I'm being honest, most of the content I saw in there was either like really old shows that looked like it would be really easy to get a license for or things that were like Kickstarter produced movies and things like that. Just basically stuff that you could get a cheap license for just to have content on a thing like this. But I wasn't aware that they made real money (laughs) with it. I mean, there are ads that play sure, but I didn't know that
0: that, netted them enough money to produce a movie of their own. Uh, now, granted, I, I don't know how much this is actually going to cost. Uh, you know, a couple mil, obviously, if... I mean, if ch- Daniel Radcliffe's in it, he's not... A, he's a major actor, so, like, let's... <laughs> Let's not forget that. Uh, that's true. Uh, and with the the casting of Daniel Radcliffe, he's not coming cheap. It's uh, highly unlikely he's going to work for scale. Uh, but this just means his salary is coming out of the uh, the catering budget. So uh, it's a brown bag at every day to the set kind of deal for this Weird Al movie. Yes. I'm kidding. I speak in jest, of course. I don't really know. Uh Similarly, we don't really know when this biopic, this weird, the Al Yankovic story endeavor is going to be coming out because there's been no release date uh, announced yet. Uh But we do know it's going to be coming to the Roku channel. So, and I'd imagine other platforms too. Probably. Maybe if not. Wanna, who knows? If they want to make their money back, then license it to other services that perhaps have greater distribution channels. I call me crazy, I don't know. But uh yeah, as you can imagine there's other celebrity will be likely other celebrity cameos in this. Uh I mean at the very least Dr. Demento, I'd imagine will play himself or Probably. he's just, or he's playing someone else and that's one of the cameos. <laughs> Maybe. And they get Brian Cranston to play Dr. Demento, who knows. <laughs> yeah. So, um So so take that for what it's worth. But an intriguing idea. um, One aspect of this casting announcement for the Weird Al biopic movie that kind of struck me is there's a difference in height between these uh, two people, between Daniel Radcliffe and Weird Al Yankovic. Weird Al, when you see him... He's kind of known for his lankiness. He's blessed with long limbs, and he hams it up. That's part of his shtick and his movements on stage when he's performing, and and part of his physical comedy. Daniel, Daniel Radcliffe, not a tall person. No. Uh, from what I could uh, find of available information on the internet, uh, Weird Al Yankovic is around six feet tall. Daniel Radcliffe, about five and a half feet tall. Yeah, so... A good half a foot between them. And Daniel Radcliffe, not really known for his lankiness. No. Does does not use his limbs, his long limbs for comedic effect.
1: No. um, Yeah, well, yeah. Weird Al also does yoga and is a vegetarian and all this stuff to kind of keep up that lankiness and stuff. But uh yeah, that's not what... Uh, Daniel Radcliffe is known for. So I don't know. Like, I don't know how method he's going to get. Like, is he going to go vegetarian? Is he going to, you know, is he going to learn the accordion? Is he going to like, learn how to put his leg behind his head? Cause that's the thing that I've seen weird. Al do. And then just hop around on stage. Yeah. While playing the accordion, which are not light instruments. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm just going to go out and say weird. Al is actually in really good shape.
0: I like, I think uh, he would have to be to do a lot of what he does. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. So, <laughs> so Daniel Radcliffe, uh, you know, the, the once informer, uh, Harry Potter will now be playing Weird Al in an upcoming biopic. So that's the thing that's happening. I'm looking forward to it because it's new Weird Al related content and I'm a sucker for anything Weird Al does. And also just to see the, the weird twists and turns that this will take as a, you know, pseudo biopic. They're not doing it as a straight laced, you know, straight ahead thing. So uh, color me intrigued.
1: Yeah. Also, I'd like to just point out because I've just been kind of clicking around and curious, Doctor Demento is 80 years old.
0: Holy hell! So they better get on this. Yeah, they better get on the <laughs> book. Oh. <laughs> uh, and as we learn more about this project and any sort of release date, uh, any sort of information like that, we'll bring it to you because, of course, we are fans of Weird Al here on this program. If you haven't been able to discern that from the first 20-ish minutes of this program so far. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and I have to say, good on Daniel Radcliffe for taking such a, a weird casting choice as this and taking a, a literal weird role like this. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, this and, uh, Swiss army man, I guess, are <laughs> going to be interesting caps in his, uh, feathers in his cap. Uh,
0: certainly. I mean, he may have uh, come to public notoriety with the, you know, the role in the the seven or eight Harry Potter films, but uh after that, he's really made some some inspired uh, uh film choices and role choices since then. Yeah. Well it's
1: he's doing the same thing that Elijah Wood did, um, with, you know trying to take the craziest things you can right out of the gate to not be typecast. Even though we all we're all gonna know Elijah Wood as Frodo, and we're all gonna know um Daniel Radcliffe as Harry Potter, like that's just gonna be a thing that they're known for, but thankfully, like in the case of both of them, we know that they can do other stuff too. So it's like, oh yeah, he was Harry Potter. Oh, but he's also great in this movie. So.
0: I yeah, guess We'll see. And for, from all accounts and all appearances of what I've seen of Daniel Radcliffe, uh, in the years since the Harry Potter franchise, movie franchise has subsided, uh, he seems amazingly well adjusted. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you and I certainly you know remember perhaps child stars of the '90s uh, or you know hearing stories of child stars from the '80s as well, who just kind of you know ended up almost as cautionary tales. But Daniel Radcliffe comes across in interviews and whatever clips I've seen of him talking, he's at peace with you know the Harry Potter roles in the franchise, and also seems to have a level of uh, acknowledgement and acceptance of kind of what he means and what that role means to people's lives.
1: Yeah, but also I think even more than that, like, I mean, just to, as a brief off-topic thing before we get back to the rest of the show here, uh, you know, I, as I did mention that 20-year anniversary thing, HBO did this whole reunion special with all the cast where they were just kind of getting retrospective, you know, takes on things. And, you know, I watched that with my girlfriend who's a big fan of Harry Potter. Like, um, you know, I, I like the movies and stuff, but, you know, for the people who, like, it was a massive part of their childhood growing up, it was like... It and that was it for her. So, you know, whatever I watch it with her and it was, it was cool. But the thing I noticed when they were showing all of like the, the kind of behind the scenes footage from when all those movies were being made was, Oh, all of, they basically got all of these kids who all, they ended up growing up together. Like when they, when they were filming them going to school at Hogwarts in a weird way, they kind of did all go to school together at Hogwarts. Right. So like. Mm -hmm. Like, they were movies and, like, they were huge stars, but at least, like, unlike other child stars who were, like, the Macaulay Culkins and things, they at least had – they have peers who went through the same thing they did, who they could relate to, right? Like, they had a group of people that they all grew up with in this weird situation, unlike Macaulay Culkin, who was by himself or whatever, like, you know, other child stars like a Shirley Temple or whoever else, like the 90s ones, you know, various mm-hmm. – uh all of them who weren't really in a situation like that, because I think that also contributed to his being well adjusted. But that's just uh That's
0: yeah, my two sense. Yeah, no, I totally totally get that and can see the the difference that would have on someone uh going through that experience having a community around you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, having peers, having, you know, other kids. Because it was many of this if not all, the same actors in those roles through all the movies. It was, the kids, for sure, it was, it was the same kids. They all grew up together in the same roles. So, yeah, I totally, uh, I totally get that. That's a good point. So, uh, hopefully that, uh, uh, will allow him to expand his chops and, uh, do a decent Weird Al and, uh, see how this goes when Weird, the Al Yankovic story eventually comes out to the Roku channel and probably other outlets as well. It probably. I mean, I'm not holding my breath, but, uh, probably. So, so yeah, we'll uh, bring you more news on that as it uh, develops and unfolds, as there's other casting announcements, uh, we'll see. But, uh, we'll get to our second ludicrous leadoff, off which has the distinction as being one of the rare times where it's a ludicrous leadoff, off but it's also really our first meat and potatoes news story as well of what we're talking about here on this particular episode. Perhaps you heard the news. Not only did Weird Al get uh, a biopic announced this week, but uh, Microsoft is spending a whole shit ton of money.
1: Yeah. So remember Activision Blizzard? Remember how they're also like a big company? Well, turns out that Microsoft is still orders of magnitude bigger and can spend, had the amount of money just kind of laying around on reserve to say that we want that. And by that, they mean the whole company of Activision Blizzard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As they sat across from each other in the meeting, you know, Microsoft's representatives just kind of said, yeah, you know that, uh, you know that thing you got there and, and just kind of did like a, a very broad and, and made a circle in the air with their finger. Just, just did that and just like, you know the thing you got there? And Activision's person was confused and, and was like, my, my sandwich, my tie. What are you talking about? And they're like, no, no, just the company, just everything. Just all yeah, we- of you on that side of the table over there. <laughs> Yeah, we want to own that, and you, and just yeah. everything. And also your sandwich and tie. Yes. <laughs> so the deal announced by, uh it's announced, it's not officially consummated yet, but it's announced that Microsoft is intending to purchase Activision Blizzard for a sum total of $68.7 billion. Yeah. $68.7 billion. So... That's a lot of scratch. Yeah. Like, that's a whole lot of scratch. Uh, in a press release uh, heralding this announcement, Microsoft said, quote, Activision Blizzard is a leader in game development and interactive entertainment uh, and interactive entertainment content publisher with legendary games, including Call of Duty, Candy Crush, Warcraft, Diablo, Overwatch, and Hearthstone. This acquisition will accelerate the growth in Microsoft's gaming business across mobile, PC, console, and cloud, and will provide building blocks for the metaverse. Ugh, metaverse. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's
1: a whole other topic that we're not getting into just necessarily yet, or today. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that that's a whole lot of stuff. Like, yeah, like, it's not just Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. Yeah, like, it's, like, let's not forget, like, there's a whole bunch of online stuff as well. Like, Candy Crush is in there. Like, you know how Candy Crush remains one of the top mobile phone games and, like, rules in microtransactions? hmm Yeah, Microsoft now owns that as well.
0: Or, or is planning or, to own it. So this it, is going to take we'll, a while we'll to own do. That. Yeah.
1: yeah, there's a lot of due diligence that will happen here, but yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot of paperwork that's uh, going to go on to make this deal happen. I think the current uh uh understandings that this deal probably won't be officially done until sometime in 2023. Yeah. So so this is going to take a while to get through. There's a lot of paperwork to deal with, uh regulatory hurdles, whatever else comes along the way, but uh so Microsoft Buying this, uh we got a lot to talk about and get into it here, but uh we'll just start with this and open the floor. Thoughts on Microsoft spending $68.7 billion to buy Activision Blizzard. Good, bad, indifferent? Your take. I mean, my take is that, well, remember in the
1: 90s when Microsoft was considered a big, scary, evil corporation because of how much, you know, how, you know, ever-present and kind of just everywhere they were?
0: Yep, yep, yep. They're
1: back to that point again, I think. (laughs) So I didn't really, like, if if this is my own ignorance, but, you know, with the last couple of years with, you know, financial reports and stuff coming out about, like, all the companies to look out for, Microsoft kind of fell off the radar, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but Microsoft fell off the radar to me a little bit in, you know, the midst of all of these other fan companies, like, you know, Facebook, Apple, Apple.
0: Uh, Amazon, Netflix, Google,
1: Google. like Microsoft isn't part of that. And as a result, they just kind of like disappeared from my brain as being this company that, you know, was as big as those other companies. Cause you, you hear like, you know, Oh, Apple's huge. Apple's like Apple's a $3 trillion company. Amazon's a $2 trillion company. Oh, they're huge. I might have those reversed. Um, I think I have those reversed anyways. Two and three trillion dollar companies, like that's, that's unheard of. That's crazy. Blah, blah, blah. But then just out of curiosity, I looked the other day, Microsoft also is a two trillion dollar company.
0: Still. It feels like Microsoft has kind of been laying in the weeds. For a while, just kind of you know, off to the side, maybe not getting the the same spotlight put on them as the other Fang companies were, uh, but also maybe not doing like the crazy growth in in revenue or uh, share price or whatnot that some of these other companies have done, or even like a Tesla has done over the last little while. So yeah. they're not getting the attention. They're just kind of slowly off to the st- off to the side puttering about their own business, going about their own affairs, but while doing so, they're actually getting bigger and bigger and bigger and uh, doing sometimes weird things uh, like spending money to buy GitHub. Yeah, like GitHub, not really going to provide them any sort of
1: direct, immediate money because it's GitHub is just, if you're not a developer, this means nothing to you, but... GitHub is just a open source repository host. There are plans you can pay for, like for, you know, um, if you are a company and you need to have a lot of repositories and a lot of people to have access to those repositories and to make sure that the repositories are private, there are things you can do to pay. But like in terms of money, like the big thing about GitHub is it's all open source. Like it's all, it's where open source software essentially lives. And at the end of the day, open source software by itself, I don't want to say is not worth anything because that's definitely not true. Like with the man hours that go into it, it's worth something, but it's not, it's not actively making anyone money by just sitting there. So it's not, it didn't seem like an obvious thing for them to buy at that price, even though in hindsight, it kind of makes sense with all the technology and just wanting to basically have that visibility and the developer world and all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. Like, cool. Makes sense, I guess. But then other things were like, they've, you know, remember like when they purchased Minecraft for $2 billion, like Mojang.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, like, they did a couple of years ago. Um, and they just to own it, just to have that property. Yeah. Which, you know, in hindsight, probably was actually very
1: good for them. Not sure how quick it took them to break even, but I'm sure they broke even because I mean, Minecraft is to this day, one of the major pillars of gaming. I mean, if you look at online, you know, Twitch streaming and stuff and all that stuff, Minecraft is basically, it's so much more than a game. It's also a platform for just experimentation. And it's essentially like, it's essentially Lego. So for, for Microsoft to own that, that's also big. And more recently, another big thing that they did was they, you know, in case you forgot, just to recap you here, they bought Bethesda. So that gives them access to all of the Elder Scrolls and, you know, all of that stuff that goes with it. For But that was $7.5 billion. That one didn't really make sense to us because, you know, like, yeah, Skyrim is a popular game, but... And, you know, Fallout's a popular franchise, but is it the, you know, the evergreen moneymaker that something like World of Warcraft is? But That's then, a good, good question. Yeah. But then, you know, fast forward to now, <laughs> the, like, I don't know if 68 or say almost $69 billion is overvaluing at this, but at the very least, this is Microsoft buying World of Warcraft. <laughs> And Diablo and Overwatch and Candy Crush and Call of Duty. All of these are massive money makers. So I think it makes sense for Microsoft to want all these massive money makers, but I don't know how long they're going to take to break even on all these massive money makers. But also I guess it's just owning the franchises and also owning, you know, not owning, owning is the wrong word, but now having access to all of the brains of behind all of these franchises. That's perhaps where all the value lies. Not sure.
0: I mean, entirely possible. It remains to be seen because in addition to the franchises, you touched on it there, uh, Microsoft is getting a lot of uh, development studios and will be, I guess, planning to take over Activision Blizzard's 10,000 employees. Yeah, that's a lot. Now, granted, there's going to be some some duplication of jobs and titles and positions, so there's probably going to be, you know, layoffs buyouts, firings, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment here. Uh, so the, all 10,000 will not be part of the Microsoft ecosystem, you know, going forward. And some may just want to cash out now, you know, their shares and maybe not want to be part of Microsoft going forward. Who knows? Uh, but this is... A surprising deal. It wasn't rumored. There was no scuttlebutt anywhere prior to this announcement, which came out earlier this week. Uh, but it is a very big deal and will have a lot of ramifications going forward. And uh, going forward, I, as a Microsoft shareholder, uh, with my handful of shares here, so I'll speak with authority on this. <laughs> uh, my perspective is that I don't like it. No, I get it. I get The idea, and I get why they're doing it, and especially why they're doing it now, but as a general premise, I do not like this deal. So I get why Microsoft is doing it now, because the value of Activision Blizzard, and and certainly their share price, has taken a hit over the last several months because of the scandals that the company that Activision Blizzard has been embroiled in, as well as the lawsuits they are facing from various uh, peoples and also state entities like the state of California. Yeah. So the value of a, of one share of Activision Blizzard is down uh, roughly 30% since last summer. So, uh, from like $90 down to like 60 some odd dollars. I'm using ballpark figures there, but that's the general idea. Uh, and so I get it. I mean, Strikewall, I mean, Microsoft is buying the dip.
1: Yeah. Here's sort of a little bit of an interesting counter to that though. Um, we know what we know what the public persona problems with Activision Blizzard are right mm-hmm. and i guess I guess this ties into maybe the the next thing loosely um sort of, but I'm just going to go out and say it, I think the big public persona problem with Activision Blizzard is sexual misconduct, and you know that was sort of all headed up by you know it being run by a guy who himself has been accused of some pretty serious stuff. So among a couple of other things, you know, like the, you know, the, the lawsuits involving, you know, microtransactions and things like that and all that. So if all Microsoft needs to do to turn, like, I'm just going to say, like, I think all Microsoft really needs to do to turn it around is to, make a big show about how these things are going to go away or have gone away in the case of one thing very soon is that, and then they kind of get a free pass, I think. And then that's when I can see things turning around again. Of course that might just be me being overly optimistic and simplifying it too much, but I think that might be all they unfortunately will need to do. And I say unfortunately because they're a big company and, you know, we don't – they don't really deserve our pity or anything for kind of getting themselves in the middle of some kind of controversy or whatever. But if this is like them saying like, oh, we're, we're going to get rid of the
0: controversy, like if that's all they need to do, then it will turn it right around. Entirely possible, and I think that uh, may be an aspect of this, uh, because one of the other uh, uh, items that came out in the wake of the announcement, uh, you know, hours afterward, people started wondering aloud, what will happen to Activision Blizzard CEO, Bobby Kotick? Because Bobby Kotick, in addition to being the CEO of Activision Blizzard, is also one of the focal points for a lot of uh, the negative publicity around Activision Blizzard, and uh it as a company for the last several years and also the perception of the company's handling of sexual harassment claims, allegations, lawsuits, whatever, uh, that have basically come out, uh, in over the past couple of years. We've never really talked about, about them on this program because we're not really qualified to talk about those sorts of things. They're happening. They will unfold. Uh, we ultimately are not able to check our privilege enough to talk about them. We're not there knowing enough to talk about it, but they are existing. And there's a lot of, a a lot of negativity that has uh, built up around and been following around Activision Blizzard really for the last like two, three years. And it seems like none of it has gone away, nor have any genuine attempts been made to solve the problems internally amongst Activision Blizzard and the high ranking officials in the company. This sounds like uh, the staff, you know, know what they want and they want changes, but the higher ups, those who are paid quite handsomely, are not willing to make those changes. And a lot of that will come from the top of Bobby Kotick, who, as you mentioned, is himself uh, the subject of a lot of these claims and allegations of sexual uh, misconduct, harassment, uh, and other things of that nature. So by the sounds of it in the reporting uh, that came out afterwards, the scuttlebutt is that uh, Bobby Kotick has agreed to depart from Activision Blizzard once the takeover is finalized. Now, again, this is going to take a while to do and likely will not be complete until June of 2023. But uh, in a press release uh, put out by a Microsoft spokesperson uh, on uh, Tuesday, I believe it was, uh, it said, quote, Bobby Kotek will continue to serve as CEO of Activision Blizzard, and he and his team will maintain their focus on driving efforts to further strengthen the company's culture and accelerate business growth. Once the deal closes, the Activision Blizzard business will report to Phil Spencer, CEO of Microsoft Gaming, end quote. So if the company is reporting directly to Phil Spencer, you don't need another CEO in there acting as a go-between, So that reads to me as Bobby Kotick is out once this deal closes. Yep. I
1: mean, which is going to be great news for, you know, them with their image, (laughs) you know, the image of Activision, that's going to maybe go a long way. It just, it's unfortunate that, you know, someone who has all these accusations against them, I mean, granted, I don't want to, you know, throw someone under the bus unduly, but given the volume and frequency of the, you know, accusations seems like it's, you know, there is credence to it. So, um, all that said, it is unfortunate that, you know, it seems like there's, you know, he's not, he's not just getting fired unceremoniously. Like he is getting a big payout to walk away as well, which, you know, probably doesn't do a lot for goodwill. (laughs)
0: Uh, no, but I, I think there's there's nothing that can be done about it, given what he would have negotiated as part of his compensation package with Activision or to be the CEO of Activision Blizzard. Um, I did see game industry reporters uh, actually posting a snippet that they found, or perhaps retweeting a snippet they found from the from the books from the financial reports of Activision Blizzard uh, either last year or year before where. If, uh, it kind of breaks down the, the base salary structure of, uh, Bobby Kotick and his compen, you know, his compensation benefits and that kind of thing, and then goes through a breakdown of his compensation in various scenarios. If he's investigated and, uh, you know, made to leave with cause, he's entitled to X amount without cause, X amount, blah, 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 and goes through this. And so if he, leaves the company as part of a changeover in the company as you know, part of the company being taken over, he is entitled to compensation to the tune of, uh, $292 million. Yeah. That's on top of what he would already get with his shares in the company that, uh, are going to be paid out or bought out at like a 30% premium from Microsoft to buy the outstanding shares. Yeah. And, So at bare minimum, he's getting an almost $300 million payout. But, you know, I guess in one kind of weird way,
1: you can also look at this as going as a thing of, well, this is maybe, you know, it's a, it's maybe a blessing for, you know, in disguise that such a big company like Microsoft is able to swoop in and actually like throw some of their money at this to actually finally solve this problem. Because this has been a problem, like you said, for like two, three years in the media, and probably a lot more than that if you were an actual employee of the company. So this is probably a welcome change,
0: I would imagine. Uh, Certainly. Now, I can imagine a lot of employees inside Activision Blizzard are perhaps uh, holding their breath and taking very much a wait-and-see approach to how this all boils down. But if we look at who's taking over Activision Blizzard here, Microsoft doesn't really have any sort of, uh, negative publicity around them in, uh, rega- in regards to their workplace or their culture or anything like that. No. No, I mean, like, I-, I think if you're a
1: Microsoft employee, people only leave because they get bored of the work. It's not that they leave because it's a toxic environment or, you know, they're burned out from too much, you know, uh, too much, uh, you know, crunch or anything like that, or, and and honestly, like, yeah, there's not really, I haven't really heard too many tales of, you know, you know, sexism, homophobia, discrimination, you know, sexual misconduct, things like that from Microsoft. I mean, but also Microsoft as a company, they are a lot, they've been around for a long time and they've been successful for a long time. So they know, you know, I think it's just generally good for business not to do that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, it's interesting. Yeah. Like there was an investor call, uh, that Eurogamer was a part of, or was able to hear, listen in on as it were, uh, where the Microsoft boss, Satya Nadella was quoted as saying that his company would have work to do after acquiring Activision Blizzard, but that for him, it was imperative that company leaders would improve the lives of the employees, which, you know, is corporate speak. It's a bit corporate speaky, but you know, I, I don't doubt it. I mean, like a lot of these big companies do pride themselves on consistent culture. And if, you know, their culture says, Hey, there's no discrimination. We have a zero tolerance policy for this. If it really is like an old boys club that they're kind of dismantling, I believe that, you know, they have that ability to get rid of it. And honestly, it should be a good thing.
0: Uh It should be, and uh perhaps this is the change that uh, would be needed that uh, clearly would not be coming from inside Activision Blizzard because the people at the top who may have instigated some of this, engaged in some of the, the, the negative conduct that made life horrible for some Activision Blizzard employees, uh, they were there, and they were entrenched, and they were not going to be moving out anytime soon. Yeah. And with that, you know, change cannot come either. So, uh, it certainly seems like Microsoft is going into this with their eyes open and are very acutely aware of what exactly is, uh, or maybe not very aware, but have an idea and a working idea of what's going on at Activision Blizzard and what will need changing and, uh, what they will need to do to actually tangibly bring about change and do better for the staff uh for for the roughly 10,000 employee workforce. Yeah. So so I mean good on them for that if they do follow through and, and make tangible steps to make life better because I mean from the accounts and reporting it's uh has not been a, a good slog to work at Activision Blizzard for the last several years. Um I mean their 10,000 employee workforce, how many of them are really cranking out uh any sort of passion projects? probably not many and how many are forced to work on basically the big five moneymakers like call of duty, world of Warcraft, overwatch, candy crush and things of that nature.
1: Yeah. Uh, Probably a whole lot. I'm like, I I don't know exactly enough about Microsoft's internal culture. um, But I have a suspicion that they might have, you know, some sort of like internal incubator stuff like Google does where, You know, if you do have a passion project, you might get some time to just kind of work on it, you know, every, maybe a day a week or something, a day every couple of weeks. And they probably want to encourage that type of thing as well, because, you know, with more passion projects that are actually technically Microsoft's property means more potential for, you know, new game franchises or what have you
0: that can become, you know, the next big thing, right? It's certainly, and even if it's not a specific game that becomes the next thing, big thing, then maybe it's an idea that was in that game that can be uh, incorporated into something else that becomes a big deal. So, yeah, uh, there is that as well. The question now becomes, with uh, uh, Microsoft taking over Activision and Blizzard and its, you know, stable of franchises, a lot of which have fallen by the wayside in recent years, how open is Microsoft going to be uh, with their not necessarily platform, but with being open plat- or multi-platform for some of these titles. Probably
1: very. I mean, I know f- I read a thing for sure that they said they want to keep Call
0: of Duty in as many hands as possible, Uh, Certainly, and uh, uh, Phil Spencer apparently even had a a phone call with some of the higher-up leadership at Sony, perhaps to quell their fears that uh, Microsoft would be yanking Call of Duty off off the platforms or whatnot. Uh, But uh, he was quoted, uh, I guess, from Twitter uh, saying that he had good calls this week with the leaders at Sony. I confirmed our intent to honor all existing agreements upon acquisition of Activision Blizzard and our desire to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation. Sony is an important part of our industry, and we value our relationship. End quote. So I can see Microsoft taking a similar tact to... Uh, having franchises and titles be multi-platform uh, as they are taking and has said they would take with Bethesda games and Bethesda titles in that they're, they'll evaluate things on a case by case basis. And it seems like anything that was already established as being a multi-platform property, they will keep as multi-platform property. Yeah. In the same way, they they are keeping uh, Elder Scrolls as a multi-platform property, but Starfield, their next big uh, MMORPG in space, is a new title that will have exclusivity to PC and Microsoft platforms. Yeah, exactly. Which strikes me as probably the fairest approach they could uh, possibly take with this uh, acquisition of titles, and uh, I know Phil Spencer... Has said uh, on Twitter as well, or perhaps uh, I read it on IGN that uh, he's looked through the the list of intellectual properties that Activision Blizzard possesses, and he's getting very excited about it because if you look at the releases from Activision Blizzard over the last number of years, it's really just been Call of Duty, uh, predominantly yeah. Call of Duty, or some sort of new uh new DLC pack for World of Warcraft.
1: Yeah, with the auto, with, with the odd. You know new thing coming out like overwatch or whatever um, that still becomes huge, but still um, yeah, well, and also you know every ten years or so a new diablo game that kind of absolutely captures the <laughs> the gaming public's consciousness for you know about
0: a year or so before moving on to the next d l c back forward or anything else like that, yeah, so uh, but where does this, uh, this deal, 68.7 billion, that's a lot of scratch, like I said. And, uh, it's, it's certainly the biggest gaming deal we've ever seen, uh, come across the wire. Uh, but really, where does it rank? And, and thankfully, uh, Jordan Serrani of IGN kind of compiled a list of, uh, uh, some of the biggest, uh, media deals Uh, entertainment and media media deals we've seen over the last uh, little while. And this $68.7 billion acquisition that Microsoft is planning to do with Activision Blizzard, it ranks as basically third all time in terms of uh, media transactions.
1: Yeah. Uh, In case you're wondering what the two bigger ones are, well, the the top one was when AT&T bought Time Warner for $85.4 billion. Um, that was back in 2018. And yeah, they, they announced, like you said, like why your conservative estimate of 2023 for when this goes through is sort of based on this, I would imagine, because AT&T announced that it was buying Time Warner in 2016, uh, and it took two years for that deal to close. So yeah, uh, before this, uh, Time Warner, you know, we're involved in some other big acquisitions of all, well, the, I think one of the biggest acquisitions of all time was technically when, uh, Time Warner bought AOL for $162 billion, but that was way back in 2000. That was, I think before the dot com bubble burst. Uh, true. And actually that deal went the other way. AOL bought Time Warner. Yes. AOL did buy Time Warner. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But yeah, that was back when website, there was, there, if you don't remember that time, it was crazy. That was like the explosion of the internet was like truly like maybe one of the biggest, like, you know, opening up a Pandora's box and being unable to like even fathom putting it back in. Like it was like, it grew at such a crazy unsustainable pace that websites like AOL had $162 billion to just be able to do something like this with Now, granted, you know, they eventually kind of lost all of that momentum and had to sell back in 2015. But yeah, anyways, that was the biggest of all time. But yeah, then the next one, we're talking recent memory anyways. Yeah. Was when Disney bought 21st century Fox for $71.3 billion. That was 2019. Uh, so just a little bit more than this deal, but, uh, perhaps as I want to say maybe the same level of magnitude in terms of like cultural
0: cachet and importance. I I can see that. I can see where you, that line of thinking comes from. I mean, with that uh, 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 Disney deal to buy 21st Century Fox, you really get an idea of just how much they own and how many different properties and titles they have when you really start going through and looking at all the stuff on Disney+. Plus.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I remember talking with people at the time when that happened, that it's like, surely there must be some sort of antitrust thing happening against Disney. But no, nothing was ever triggered of the sort. And I guess it doesn't really apply because it's not really competition in the same kind of way. They're just buying up intellectual properties of things, but they're not stopping people from making their own intellectual properties. So I guess there's that. And I guess this is where the similar thing with this Microsoft deal as well Uh, that they're just buying intellectual properties of things and it's not really, it's not really like an antitrust thing in the same way that Microsoft has previously been sued for antitrust or been, you know, under antitrust investigations. For example, like when Internet Explorer was the predominantly bundled in web browser that came included with Microsoft Windows, which caused a big hubbub and stir back in the late 90s, early 2000s, with the Netscape people saying, hey, when you put the Internet Explorer icon right there, you make that look like that's the Internet. That's not, but you're just kind of misleading people saying this is how you get to the Internet. This is the only program, even though there's other programs out there. It's not really fair. But which that I see as being an antitrust thing. This, I, you know, the more I think about it, maybe it's not, but it is, it does make it kind of unsettling when you're looking now. It's like all of your favorite media. Like if you were like a big fan of star Wars and also a fan of maybe the Simpsons or, and then also like some Disney stuff, but then also, you know, liked all like a bunch of Marvel movies. Now, (laughs) if you look at that, actually, Now you like all the stuff by one company. All the stuff you like is just from one company now.
0: Yeah. And, uh, a comment I made to you before we, we started recording going through, uh, just the list of titles on Disney plus, you know, when in the app, like, you know, you know, you, you know me from growing up. I was Mr. Disney back then, but going through that, going through that list of titles of stuff on Disney plus now as an adult, full grown adult, uh, it was unsettling and and actually rather disconcerting, I found it to be, just to see how much Disney actually had and just how truly with this app of Disney Plus to have that membership, you're supporting a giant monopoly. Yeah. Like a giant monolithic company that has all these uh companies and while it, you know, obviously content wise, it cannot be a monopoly because anyone can produce their content easily now you know, nowadays, but it felt feels like a monopoly at the very least. It's a giant monolith of a company and it's really disconcerting for that fact. So, uh, do not have the Disney plus now. Also, I just really did not, the fact, did not like the fact that, uh, anytime you would log in, uh, some of the very first titles, uh, that would be like, Hey, watch this, watch this, or watch this would be a lot of, uh, the, Simpsons crossovers with Star Wars or Marvel or some sort of Disneyfication of The Simpsons.
1: Yeah, th- that's been very that's been the most unsettling part about all of it. You know, I've I've had discussions with other friends who are like big Simpsons fans before where it's like when we grew up watching The Simpsons in the 90s, it was very they were making fun of Disney for being so big. And like part of the soul of the show was that almost punk rock attitude towards like these massive corporations. Like even though it was a Fox show, they were constantly making fun of Fox and, you know, just kind of like implying that even wearing a Disney or like a Mickey Mouse hat would get you sued in the wrong context. (laughs) You know, now we're seeing, you know, Homer and Goofy, you know, together in cartoons. It's like, this doesn't make any sense.
0: Anyways, no, no, it doesn't, but uh, I mean it's the reality at this current point, so it's not going to be changing anytime soon until say Mike, you know till Disney gets bought by someone else, which doesn't seem likely at this point they've they're pretty much one of the biggest fishes, but uh <laughs> well maybe Microsoft will buy Disney ooh, interesting <laughs> could you imagine uh phew. could you imagine the teams of lawyers that would be needed to flesh out that deal? <laughs> generations of children will be put through college for that. Yes, exactly. Uh but to get, to really get a sense of just the, you know, uh fish eating other smaller fishes and becoming big fish themselves only to be, you know, consumed by larger fishes. So we're talking about the deal of Activision Blizzard being bought out by Microsoft for 68.7 billion dollars uh in 2015 Activision Blizzard bought King, the the development development studio behind Candy Crush. Yeah, 2015, that deal went down for $5.9 billion. Yeah. And now Microsoft owns both of them. Yep. So that's a thing. So, uh, th- this deal of that's been announced for Microsoft to buy Activision Blizzard is I think bigger than the next like 12 to 15 like gaming centric, uh, media deals combined. Yeah. Which is a whole lot of scratch. And I, I mentioned in my quick comments there that uh, I, as someone who will, you know holds a whole handful of shares of Microsoft here, I do not like this deal. And I never expanded it upon that point. And I'll explain my thoughts in a moment. And that actually yes. will tie into our next story here that we'll talk about. So the reason I don't really like this deal is the fact that uh, most of what drives Activision Blizzard revenue is them milking their legacy titles, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, uh, Diablo, uh, things of that nature, uh, and continuously milking these titles and seemingly only doing things to milk these titles, which after a while, those titles start to produce less and less milk. And, and certainly in our history here of doing this program, I think we can uh, acknowledge that and uh, uh, even see, we used to talk about the, the record sales that Call of Duty games would do every year. But when we uh, were doing that year after year, we noticed that, that Activision Blizzard would not release, uh, after a while, stopped releasing hard and fast sales numbers and then started to talk about things uh, in the abstract uh, you know, player engagement, yeah. uh, hours spent uh with the game, that kind of thing, because newer editions of the games stopped outselling previous year's versions. Yeah. So there's that fact. There's also the fact that uh, World of Warcraft, while it's still one of the biggest online monthly titles, it is significantly down from its peak. It, it does not have the, the 10 plus million players playing on a monthly basis like it used to a few years ago. So a lot of, uh, what drives Activision Blizzard revenue is these games that are on the downslope of the po- their popularity. Currently on their downslope. They may have an uptick and hopefully with this, uh, deal for Microsoft, you know, there can be some new blood, some new, uh, some, some new breaths of fresh air put into these titles that, let's be clear, have kind of become stagnant. I
1: think that's, that's fair, but I think the Overwatch, um, example, almost kind of turns it back to me. Like, and what I mean by that is, uh, yeah, they were resting on their laurels for sure, especially with world of Warcraft and call of duty. Um, like, it's like, yeah, they were making money and it was just definitely like, let's keep doing more of this. But I think just to kind of say they don't, bring new things to the table is unfair because they did bring overwatch to the table and it also became sort of an immediate success. So what Microsoft might be looking for is maybe more of that ingenuity of like, Hey, like when you guys do do a new thing, it's also great. So like keep doing more new things and then we'll handle, you know, you're going to have basically infinite
0: budget to work on them now. (laughs) I'd imagine I, uh, possibly. I mean, I imagine there will still be, you know, uh, some, some figures attached to things that you, but you might have bigger budgets to work with. And that is a point well taken that Overwatch is some new blood into the Activision Blizzard space. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's only one title. It's one. Granted. Yeah. So
1: like that's, it's not a good sample size, but in terms of like the massive, um, franchises that, well, I'm, I'm looking at the Blizzard side of it, not necess- not so much the Activision side of it, but in terms of Blizzard, They've never had a dud of a franchise. I mean, StarCraft, WarCraft, World of Warcraft, Diablo, and now Overwatch, these are all pillars of the gaming world, and whenever they come out, like they, they do take up a big majority of the gaming, uh, discourse, really. So, it, it's hard to, it's hard to say that, like, they have nothing to offer when everything that they have offered has been sort of like
0: so well received. I I don't think it's that they have nothing to offer. It's just that so much focus and energy has been put into just you know, the couple of legacy titles and just constantly churning out like a new world of Warcraft or new DLC to, to service the, the old revenue generating uh, guards, if you will. Yeah, in service of those. Uh, I
1: wonder. I wonder, though, how much of that is because of the Activision influence, and now that Activision's no longer the big dog, that Microsoft is the big dog. How much of that is going to change?
0: I I hope there will be change. Uh, I hope that Call of Duty is not a yearly franchise. Yeah, because it shouldn't be. I mean, it should just be
1: like remember when the first couple of Call of Duty games came out, and they were just like kind of heralded for being, you know. Kind of, I don't want to say so different, but basically like the best of their kind of like gritty war survival, like, you know, gritty war games, which when they first came out, there was like basically Medal of Honor and Call of Duty and that was it. Mm-hmm. And now that it's a massive thing, there's a million Call of Duty games, there's Battlefield and all these other things too, but yeah, so yeah it
0: it loses its impact when you do a new one every year yeah certainly and the call of duty games have uh, kind of really just become uh like an annualized franchise, like it's a sports game, like it's, like it's a Madden like it's or Madden, something. Yeah. Uh, now granted, I mean, Call of Duty games still, to this point, sell very well. Uh, the NPD group, uh, just, uh, earlier this week, if not last week, released their, uh, list of the top selling titles for the year of 2021. Topping the list once again was the new Call of Duty, Vanguard. Exact sales figures were not released, but it was the top selling title across all platforms. And that's fine. Call of Duty games always sell well. They have their audience, but are they still selling as well as they did two, three, four years ago? Yeah. My sense is they aren't. So as someone who holds a handful of Microsoft shares, what I would have preferred to see that $68.7 billion spent on, it might still be. The Microsoft might have another pot of money I don't know about because I haven't read through all the pages of the fan financial report. But a company I would have preferred them to take over and and gobble up, is Take-Two Interactive. Yeah. Which leads us to our next story. Yeah.
1: So our next story is that Take-Two Interactive is a big enough company that they were able to actually buy up another company for a lot of money, a surprising amount of money, frankly. So... (laughs) So yeah, like take two in case you're you know completely drawing a blank of what they what they're known for. They're the owner of Borderlands, uh, publisher 2K, and Grand Theft Auto maker Rockstar. Um, yeah, they're, they're a big company. They've announced that they are purchasing the mobile games giant Zynga for twelve point seven billion US dollars.
0: Um. Which, at the time it was announced, made it the most expensive video game uh, business deal of all time.
1: Yeah, which now that's been eclipsed by the Microsoft um, Blizzard Activision Blizzard thing. But still, it's still a
0: huge deal. $12.7 billion is a lot of money. Uh, with Zynga in its portfolio, Take-Two said that it would become, quote, one of the largest publicly traded interactive entertainment companies in the world. And Take-Two announced that uh, with this acquisition, their plan is to leverage Zynga's development skills to create mobile games based around their existing stable of properties. So things like Borderlands and Grand Theft Auto, uh you know, are in their uh portfolio of uh, titles, but as well as NBA 2K games, Red Dead Redemption, Bioshock, Mafia, Bully, you know, Rockstar Table Tennis. And don't yeah. forget that was a game as well, Rockstar Table Tennis. Yeah, but in terms of Zynga, you know, you
1: might be, like, the name might be foreign to you. I doubt it, because you've probably heard of some of their games. If you have a phone, like Farmville, Words with Friends, um, Harry Potter, Puzzles and Spells, Merge Dragons, Zynga Poker. Like, these are all, like, major games on the app stores. Like, if you look at top-selling games of all time... I mean, in addition to King having, you know, Candy Crush and things like that for Microsoft, for Zynga, like these are huge, and it's going to be a huge windfall for Take Two as well. I'm sure,
0: certainly. And we've seen that uh, Take Two Interactive has been uh, has done a good job of uh, continuing uh, player engagement, not just with their titles, but also on like a continual online monthly basis. Uh, certainly, there's still a strong community around uh, who played Grand Theft Auto Online. You know, and pay for things. Red Dead Online as well. So they've they've got the the console titles, you know, locked down. They've got the online aspects to titles locked down as well. But it seemed like with Take Two, the mobile game space was kind of a blind spot for them. Yeah. And now it's not going to be. <laughs> no, because they've got one of the biggest uh, mobile developers now going to be under their auspice. N- granted, similar to the Activision Blizzard and Microsoft deal, this is going to take time to go through. And similarly, I don't expect it to be completed until into 2023. It's a big expensive deal. These things do take time. Yeah. So uh, Zynga boss Frank Gibo said in the press release of this uh, deal, this transaction, quote, combining... Combining Zynga's expertise in mobile and next-gen platforms with Take-Two's best-in-class capabilities and intellectual property will enable us to further advance our mission to connect the world through games while achieving significant growth and synergies together. End quote. So finally, if you ever wanted to play a match-three uh, Grand Theft Auto game, well, in a couple of years, that reality is going to be here. Yes, but I imagine there will have some sort of crossover uh, connectivity where it might have some sort of benefit to your online uh, playing of Grand Theft Auto Online. Yeah, probably. Like some sort of – again, it's a terrible buzzword, but some sort of synergy, some sort of maybe not direct integration, but some sort of benefit. Uh, so if you're not playing online, then you can play on the go. Oh, play or- this –
1: or here's another wacky thing to think of. Maybe, maybe we're going to see things like Farmville show up as an actual legit app inside, you know, the game itself on your cell phone. Not mm. that, that, I mean, that's a bit of a novelty at that point. Like it's not going to be a serious thing that people are going to be doing, but you know more more realistic seeming you know crossovers between reality and these online spaces is i think what every company is trying to do these days anyways
0: so so perhaps a character in like grand theft auto online or something pulls out a phone and oh hey there's the words with friends app on there or something
1: yeah exactly
0: now i see what you're saying and and yeah, I can certainly see that. So, uh, Take Two has said it's keen to use Zynga's knowledge of mobile gaming to, quote, drive free to play synchronous cross-platform ambitions, end quote, in products from its existing internal studios. So, Take Two kinda is the, in some ways it feels like the antithesis of Activision Blizzard, where it does not crank out annual titles, it does not have all of its development just tied up, you know, supporting maybe two or three big titles, it it feels like it takes its time with titles to try to release truly premium titles and experiences.
1: Yeah. Like every time, like it's, it's always a massive event whenever a new Grand Theft Auto game comes out. Like, it's not just sort of like, oh, it's the the drop day for the new game. So I'm just downloading it. No, it's always like, holy crap, I can't wait to play this new
0: game. And it's like the buzz on the internet is like palpable usually. And it's not just Grand Theft Auto, I mean, there was a big buzz around Red Dead, uh, the newest Red Dead Redemption a few years ago as well. Yeah. Uh, to the point where even in, uh, some South Park episodes around the time, they were making jokes about it in the, in the game. You know, the kids trying to, uh, tell the adults, uh, or use their knowledge of how to do stuff in the game and use that to leverage, uh, things with the adults in the world. So, uh, they have their stable of properties and i mentioned call of duty is continually one of the top selling if not the top selling game year in year out the only time that it's kicked out of the number 1 spot is when there's a new grand theft auto or red dead redemption but more broadly anytime there's basically a new rockstar game yeah so maybe maybe it's next on the list for microsoft who knows i mean maybe uh as like i said as someone with a handful of shares i would have preferred a take to acquisition and it might still happen. I mean, now that they've got uh, Zynga and the mobile game space in this portfolio, maybe that makes them even more int- attractive as a uh, takeover target. Yeah, maybe. In the same way, Activision Blizzard had had king games and so you're not getting not just uh, console and online development, but also mobile development as well. So it's more of a well-rounded product. So there's that line of thinking. We'll see what the next uh, few years... Uh, uh, how they unfold, but uh, it seems like the arms race for mergers and acquisitions is currently on. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the next question becomes, who do you think is the next uh, target to be bought up in the, in the game space? I mean, I jokingly want to say Nintendo,
1: but you know, we both know that that'll never happen. That's just, there's too many weird cultural and, you know, financial uncertainties that would make that almost impossible, but more realistically, what would we probably Ubisoft might be another target?
0: I I'd, I would feel comfortable, you know, sticking with uh, Ubisoft as my uh, my target here. Uh, I think, as I I mentioned to you uh, in a previous conversation, you know, U- Ubisoft is around you know, currently has a market cap of around seven point five billion dollars. But similar to Activision Blizzard, Ubisoft has had some internal strifes and uh, some of their their perhaps negative culture and negative workplace experiences come to light in recent years. So they might be ripe for a uh, a cleansing as well of their <laughs> internal culture. Maybe. I mean, they have a stable of uh, well-known properties that seems like you could do more of them. Uh, Assassin's Creed, Beyond Good and Evil, and things of that nature. But, you know, known, liked, respected s- titles that sell well. So, uh, and if it's not Ubisoft, then you start to get into the, uh, more expensive tier of things like a Take-Two Interactive, uh, or maybe it's an EA and Electronic Arts. Yeah, which I don't see happening but you know again stranger things have happened. Yeah that's true. Uh, in this day and age uh, and in this life uh, I think we've all learned uh, never say never. Yeah. Because uh, especially the last few years should have really driven home the fact never say never. But uh, yeah. we we've talked about large sums of money being thrown around basically like it's a uh, like it's a money fight or uh, people just in Scrooge McDuck's uh, big money vault pool. Just throwing coins and diamonds at each other. Yeah.
1: Very, very much like a, a kind of a nihilistic view of, you know, the, the financial world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's uh, close things out here with one last news item that that is a, a feel good story. The scale of it isn't on par, not even in close uh, to what we've talked about through this program, but still it's a feel good story. The good people over at Awesome Games Done Quick held their, uh, winter Games Done Quick event earlier in the month of January. Uh, it has now concluded, but we can, uh, disclose what the total is. And this year's Awesome Games Done Quick event raised a record setting 3.4 million US dollars. The, the full total coming in at 3,416,000 Seven hundred twenty-nine dollars being raised for the Prevent Cancer Foundation. Yeah, and that is officially the, they they say
1: from one of their releases here is that it's officially the most we've ever raised in the history of
0: games done quick, another world record. So good on everyone involved in their uh, week-long speedrunning event. It's a week-long, if you're not familiar with Games on Quick events, they are often week-long events, uh, 24-hour telethons of people just speedrunning through games, and the greater community, those who watch, they tune in and donate money as the people are doing these speedruns at all hours of the day. So... Uh, according to the tracker for this year's event, uh, there were 148 speed runs done, 28,034 donors and 49,438 donations. So this, uh, year's event raised, uh, surpassed last year's event that did 3.13 million for the Prevent Cancer Foundation. Uh, and it was also the, uh, first, uh, first time they've reached a million dollars in donations in uh, a very short amount of time. They did not specify how long it took took them to get that million dollar mark, but still the the shortest amount of time it took them to reach to reach the million dollar mark. So now Games Done Quick uh, has raised over 37 million dollars for various charities across the world since they started putting on these events in 2010. So good on everyone involved. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, good on everyone who donated. Good on the speedrunners who donated their time, their experience, their expertise. Good on the organizers. I will uh, make this comment every chance I get when talking about these sorts of stories, but good on the the organizers to coordinate everything. Uh, putting on an event like this, you can imagine, is a massive headache. Uh, it's never easy. A lot of moving parts. And trying to herd people for these things can be like trying to herd cats.
1: Yeah. It's uh, not an easy endeavor.
0: It's certainly not so. so a tip of the hat and uh, genuine kudos to everyone involved for this and raising 3.4 million dollars for a worthwhile cause, the Prevent Cancer Foundation. So good on everyone for that. But now let's turn our attention to some items that do not involve money. In fact, they're not current. They're not a hot-breaking stock tip. They're not a new business deal. No, instead, let's take some time to talk about things from yesteryear that uh, hit the nostalgia button for us. They are uh, items that, uh, that we feel certainly deserve mentioning. They're of a certain vintage, and we think you should know about, and at least hear about in case you've forgotten about them entirely. It is time for our Blast from the Past. Yeah, so I think this week, uh,
1: well, this week we have two items on the docket. Uh, a, a younger item of the two is a video game, and the older item of the two is a television program.
0: But I think we should start with the video game. Certainly, the video game uh, was released on January 15th, 2007 for the Nintendo Wii when the system was still in its infancy. It was still only a few months old at that point. Uh This is a game that was released within the first couple months of the Wii being uh, available on the marketplace and still was then, and I think can be argued still to this day, 15 years on, is one of the best examples of what you could do with the Wii and its motion controls. That game is WarioWare Smooth Moves.
1: Yeah, it's... uh if you're familiar with WarioWare, or if you're not familiar with WarioWare, I should say, it's, it's an interesting franchise. It always has been an interesting franchise in that it's a collection of micro games, they call it. Not even mini games, but micro games because they're super fast paced. You're, you're playing them for no more than like 10 seconds. And they're always like, there's no instructions. You're kind of thrown in and you have to figure out what to do. There's usually one or two words of, you know, uh, instruction. Sometimes it's like shave and then you just see a hairy guy and you're like, what do I do? Oh, and then you have to just kind of, you know, wave the, the, the remote all over until all the hair has gone from the guy or something, or just weird things like that. And then it'll be like, okay, whoever wins gets the point then the next, next game. It's very fast paced, fast, like just rapid fire, just in your face. (laughs) And like the games that you play are so ridiculous. And they're like, It's basically boundless creativity put into the game.
0: Absolutely. And not just in terms of gameplay, but also art styles in between all the micro games as well. Hmm. So there's, as you said, endless creativity put in. It is uh, one of the most enjoyable experiences you can have playing the Wii, not just for the gameplay aspect as well. Although the gameplay is really entertaining – but I think we've said before, and we'll reiterate now, this is one of the funniest games I think we can recall coming across.
1: Oh yeah. I, I think part of it was just because of, you know, Mike and I's both shared love of uh Jack Handy's Deep Thoughts, which was an old an old recurring um segment on SNL back in the you know early nineties kind of thing, you know, from that Whole era of, you know, Kevin Nealon era of, uh, SNL where it was just basically all these ridiculous things said by a super calm voiced character over basically a kind of serene background and serene kind of music playing. They took that format to, to basically introduce what they called these, uh, the form factors or the, uh, well, they called the Wii Remote the form baton and then there was these different forms that the form baton was supposed to take. I think there was eight or nine of them or something, maybe more where every time a new form was introduced, they kind of cut to this like very serene, like it went from like this frenetic, fast paced craziness of this game to just quiet piano music with a guy just kind of talking like this, explaining what this new form baton is. And then there was always some kind of bananas, like, I don't even know what you want to call it. Like a, like a, like a malapropism or something just kind of at the end, just kind of talking about um like whatever the form is like in the, in the case of the remote control, like, you know, they say, I'll hold the form baton straight with the tip pointing forward. And then it says this simple stance reflects one of life's fiercest and greatest sports channel surfing. <laughs> and, was, and all of them had
0: a weird joke like that. Like, <laughs> Like, it was hilarious. It it was not something you ever expected, given the nature of the game as well. No. And that dynamic, that contrast between the two experiences, again, this fast-paced, really frenetic gameplay action of the microgames, juxtaposed with uh, a a game, a moment of forced calmness. Where yeah. you stop, and you really have to—you're in that moment of just hearing and reading the, the, uh, you know, the voice read the words and, and come across, and that's all there is to it—is just you have to indulge in that moment of calm and serenity before the the craziness of the gameplay picks up once again. And it worked—it it like they're harsh contrasts uh, on the scale of, of energy, but they worked—they worked so well together. Yeah. And, and if you don't have WarioWare Smooth Moves in your collection, uh, it is w- certainly worth adding to your collection, given all the, the, uh, mini or micro games that there are, uh, the form baton moments. Uh, there is also a, another game you can unlock and play in WarioWare Smooth Moves where it's, uh, it's basically a, it's not even a mini game, it's an actual full gameplay experience where there's 50 levels of Using your Wii remote to control a platform at the bottom of the screen, it's it's like a puzzle game, like a almost like a Tetris style puzzle game. But instead of uh, having to form lines, you control a platform at the bottom of the screen with your Wii remote, moving side to side, uh and you have to move your platform to collect all these geometric shapes that are falling from the ceiling. And as someone who enjoys sort these sorts of uh, shape based uh, puzzle games. I enjoyed it, and let me tell you, once you get up to, get up to the 50th level, that's damn hard. Was that uh Blockstar? Uh, may have been. Uh, it may have been. I don't recall the name of it off the top of my head, but what I do recall is that I played through it. I beat all the levels. I did it all. Unfortunately, I did not do it on my Wii or my profile. <laughs> I kind well, of got sucked into it when I was uh, playing the game at my sister's apartment one time, and... uh I just kept going because I was having success and lo and behold, I beat all 50 levels on her game and her account.
1: Yes. Well, the lesson is never put too much effort in on someone else's console.
0: And that's true. It's as true then or was true then and remains as true now, but uh, it's also true. WarioWare smooth moves a worthwhile experience even 15 years on, but let's shoot the uh, time arrow even further back, go to January 20th of 1987. That was the day that this TV series made its debut on, I believe it was CBS, CBS or NBC? I can't recall. Uh, it was NBC it. to start with. NBC, okay. And then CBS later on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So this series, really unique, was unique then, unique now, uh just given the nature of it, it was kind of, it was an anthologized series with just different uh snippets of stories, maybe like three, four stories in each hour long episode, all narrated in between by, with the gravitas of Robert Stack, this show was unsolved mysteries. Yeah. Which looking at it, the original run of this show
1: went a lot longer than I thought it actually did <laughs> for like, it It aired well it started airing in nineteen eighty seven and it kept going until two thousand and two. I didn't realize it kept going until two thousand and two, but yeah, I mean, if I think back about it, you know that general time frame kind of encapsulates our entire childhood, you know our young childhood, and thinking about it. Unsolved mysteries was what like it was a constant, like it was always on t
0: v Absolutely a constant. If it wasn't, uh, say, in new airings on NBC or later CBS, I believe it was in syndication. So you could uh, see older episodes uh, as well, and then catch new ones, say, I think it was Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, it got moved around a lot. But if you've never heard of and, and or never experienced Unsolved Mysteries, it's a wild show. And an entertaining show, but just a wild and different show. So I said it's anthologized. There would be about three or four different stories presented, but they would all have some element of mystery to them. And yeah. it may have been, uh but they weren't all the same types of mysteries. Let me put it to frame it this way. If unsolved mysteries was done now, all the mysteries would be about, you know, someone's unexpected uh, murder and disappearance or disappearance and murder. And it just would likely become a murder show. Yeah. Unsolved mysteries back then had stories about uh random disappearances, uh paranormal sometimes, things
1: sometimes.
0: It, very much paranormal things, uh experiences with perhaps the, the undead, specters and spooks and ghosts or uh extraterrestrials or people claiming they had an extraterrestrial experience and have the markings to prove it, or the sense of lost time that goes along with it. Or uh perhaps uh, they even had stories about uh, urban legend monsters, like like the New Jersey Devil, or the Mothman. Yeah. Or El Chupacabra. Yeah, or even just Bigfoot in general. Yeah, they had, I think, a few stories about uh, Bigfoot in general. So it was all just these weird... Uh, random stories that did not tie together in any sort of larger narrative or cohesive, but they were all presented as stories and presented with reenactments. Yep.
1: Yeah. Because that was a very big thing. I think this was the show that kind of kicked it off, but it became a big thing in the nineties to have, you know, dramatic reenactments of stories that were told rather than just, you know, a documentary style footage. Like it was almost like docudrama, if you want to call it that, where it was kind of based on a true story, but then they would get, you know, actors to portray the events so that, you know, you have a a nice clear Hollywoodized kind of visual, or I guess not even Hollywoodized. Like, I don't know if in the, especially in the early seasons that Unsolved Mysteries had the biggest budget, but uh yeah, it was, if you think about it, like, going from not that to that, it's a very strange format of just like someone's telling a story and now I'm just going to interject like
0: people acting out the thing that this person told. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And it didn't matter what the story was. There'd be some accompanying dramatic reenactment to it from somebody maybe having an, uh, an experience with aliens to, uh, some unexpected disappearance or whatever it was Um, they had a a telling dramatic reenactment to it with Robert Stagg doing the, like the voiceovers and narration through everything. Yeah. And like the, the motif and style of the show was presented almost like it was some noir drama.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right down to like the, (laughs) like the, the, the kind of mysterious sounding theme song, which I'm sure of people of our age range, it's going to be stuck in your head forever. Like, you know, it's one of those things that'll randomly pop in your head and be like, "Yep, there's that, there's the unsolved mysteries theme. Great. But then, you know, he would always walk out from like behind some like, like steamy kind of like foggy. He was obscured by fog and then would step into the, you know, the foreground be like, hello, I'm Robert Stack. (laughs) It's just like wearing some kind of a trench coat. (laughs) And it's just like, that wasn't really necessary,
0: but here we are. Yeah, the stand-up uh, scenes with Robert Stack were always shot at night, uh and it always looked kind of wet around, uh, like there was some element of moisture, as you said, perhaps fog or something. He's always wearing, wearing the trench coat, and uh, often he's like near a building or behind a building, but there's something. It's never just him randomly in the middle of the street. There's some sort of element of building as an anchor to that framing.
1: Well, it's like he's walking between two buildings that are just kind of like... Just off the dock or something, <laughs> you know, like that,
0: that's what it really looks like, right? Like just it, off the dock at night? Yeah, kinda. Like he's at like the port. Yeah. But he's not at the port, he's probably on a, like a Hollywood soundstage or something or, or. Yeah, just constructed to look that way. Yeah, a back lot somewhere at Universal Studios and they just filmed everything at night. So, but that, that element of just Robert Stack talking to you in a trench coat at a nighttime stand up shot just added to the element of like, what's going on? There's something mysterious going on. Like he is someone who possesses, uh, unspoken information and he's just giving it to you on the down low. But you know, the, yeah. the greater forces at play don't want you to know this story that's about to be told. Yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And it was a wild and really entertaining series. Yeah. Like, looking back on it, it, it was a wild series. I mean, the dramatic reenactments, not all of them are going to hold up because they were very much of the era. But the stories presented were wild and entertaining. I know uh there's been a recent reincarnation, like a short episode run of new Unsolved Mysteries released to Netflix. I think it was only like a four to six episode uh, arc. But each episode was focused on one single mystery. And yeah. there were some murder shows on there, but I think some alien encounter type show uh, episodes as well. So it, uh, okay, that's something. And prior to the Netflix redo of Unsolved Mysteries, Spike TV picked up the franchise for a period of time and had new episodes done of it with Dennis Farina, actor Dennis Farina, who has since passed, playing, playing the presenter to the audience, uh, taking place of Robert Stack.
1: Yeah. Didn't have the same gravitas as Robert Stack, unfortunately. I mean, Dennis Farino was a great actor as well, but he was no Robert Stack. Like –
0: it certainly wasn't Robert Sack and it wasn't presented with the same kind of like noir back alley motif uh, in his stand ups. Instead it was more like I'm Dennis Freena in this control room that is filled with uh you know busy people working at computers, taking phone calls, trying to unsol trying to solve all these unsolved mysteries.
1: Yeah, making it making it more like America's most wanted or something.
0: Yes, very much so. Uh, a lot more like that as opposed to the presentation of, of mysterious stories. So it lost something there, but the original run, I think is, of unsolved mysteries is available on Amazon prime. If you have, or if not scour the internet, I'm sure it exists somewhere for watching. Uh And it's enjoyable for like a, an eighties TV kick uh, to see what some of the mysteries were back then. And let's be clear after like a 15 year run, not all the mysteries are going to be good.
1: No. And in, in a way that, makes it even more kind of endearing when you watch like a bad episode. It's kind of funny just to say like, wow, this was a TV thing. Like they, they did this. Someone seriously made this.
0: Yes. (laughs) And seriously made it for
1: 15 seasons. Yeah. And it was, it truly is like from a different time. Like, I don't know if like that would in that, in its original format with some of the episodes that we saw, I don't know if we'd see that anymore. And I kind of missed that.
0: No. And and I made the point uh, earlier too. Like I'm pretty sure if Unsolved Mysteries, you know, was ever attempted again or that format was attempted again these days, it's just going to be a straight up murder show.
1: Yeah. It's going to be true crime because true crime is what people care about these days, apparently. For the time being. Yeah. For the time being. Yes. But yeah, I don't know. There was, there was always something endearing about like the kind of more offbeat off the wall, wacky ones like, Oh, this guy claims he saw, you know, the moth Man. And then it was just literally just like jittery footage of like, you know, some person clearly with like, you know, lit up glasses or something made to look like a moth a little bit. It's like, Oh, he was, I was driving at night and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, well there's obviously holes in this guy's story, <laughs> but you know, it's fun to just kind of like be the viewer and poke the holes in the story. And the show
0: itself isn't poking the holes in the story. No, it's presenting it, and it's I think presenting the person's experience, you know, honestly. Yeah. Even
1: though if that person's experience is going to be a little bit kind of questionable of like, were you drunk? It sounds like you were drunk. Like <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anyway. I, but yeah, Unsolved Mysteries, just this weird, quirky show from the eighties that just kinda lasted. So January twentieth, nineteen eighty-seven, the the debut of Unsolved Mysteries on NBC, later moving to CVS, and then later now like I said Amazon Prime or wherever, wherever else you find it on the internet and before that we spoke about WarioWare Smooth Moves one of the best experiences still to be released on the Wii it turns 15 years old and is still worth your time as I would say Unsolved Mysteries is still kind of worth a, a rewatching uh WarioWare Smooth Moves worth replaying. You'll have to dig out your Wii and reconnect it all, but it's worthwhile. Enjoy it. Or at least go into YouTube and watch the, uh, uh, some sort of supercut of the, uh, the interstitial form baton footage, uh, as well. Yeah. Or form baton explanations, that's what I should say. So uh, check those out, well worth your time. And uh, that about wraps us up for this episode of The Arcade. We thank you so much for joining us once again. All you uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, uh, women, children, adults, uh, uh, everyone in between. We thank you so much for joining us once again and hope you had an enjoyable experience. We had an enjoyable experience putting it all together. And if you have uh, questions, comments, concerns, or problems, you can always email us. info at thearcadeshow.com is how you can get a hold of us or hit us up through social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook, both of the main evil platforms at the Arcade show. And if you haven't done so already, treat yourself to subscribing to this program and get it delivered right to your digital doorstep whenever new episodes become available. Can, we are available to subscribe to on iTunes. And Google Podcasts direct links to our pages on both those platforms can be found again on our website of show.com So until next time, good night everybody! Good night. <laughs>